Well, hello and welcome to Finding Our Way, our Southridge Church member podcast designed to give people the inside scoop on life in our church. Here's our host and lead pastor, Jeff Lockyer. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Finding Our Way. This is our Southridge member podcast, and we're glad you're joining us again this week. Um, As we continue to navigate, especially this third wave of the pandemic, I know there's been a lot of conversation about managing the mental health aspects of uh, the lockdown and uh, the challenges of the pandemic. And so I'm really excited to have with us uh, Nate Venema today to spend some time with us. Nate, say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. Uh, Before we get into the topic at hand, uh, just kind of acquaint all of us with your life, who you are, where you're from, kind of your background and history, and let us get to know you a little bit. Sure. So I attend currently, or I did before COVID, the uh, Welland Southridge location with my wife, Jill, and three sons. I have three boys, uh, age 13, 12, and 8. So it's it's not a boring time during COVID with uh, video schooling. Uh, perhaps some ministers may even know my wife, Jill, who she had a great run in the Southridge family ministry team, working with movers and shakers and little lights before she recently went back to teaching. Um, yeah, we found Southridge, uh, back in 2008 when we moved to St. Catharines and, uh, we were just immediately drawn to, to what was happening in the shelter. So, um, just to have a chance to have these kind of conversations about people trying to worship with their lives and not just their lips and to go from uh, connecting with you guys back then to here on the mic. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Very good. It's not often we have the, uh, the spouse come and podcast as well, but uh, Jill's already a seasoned veteran in finding <laughs> our way. So you're, uh, you're kind of getting the double take in your help in your house. Hopefully she's giving you some coaching tips on how to ace this. I'll, I'll need all I can get. <laughs> Shout out to Naundorf and the team for their editing prowess. Cause you might need it for this. Uh, we might be on a bit of a serpent safari. No, this is going to be great, Nate. I really appreciate <laughs> you in this. Hey, uh, can you just talk about what you are up to for work these days? Cause you know, that's relevant context of the discussion we're going to have. Okay. Um, if you don't mind, if I hijack that question and, and, and sort of go back to what we're um, back to the goals eventually, and it'll make sense why I'm telling you this, because mm-hmm. if, if this podcast is talking about mental health, uh, what I've, what I'm doing currently and what I've done sort of really intertwines with that. So um, uh, I, I moved out of St. Catherine's at age 17, I grew up there in the little community of, you know, loving Dutch immigrants. And I went to university in Michigan at age 17 to the town of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, that sort of changed my life. And I ended up working with folks on the streets, um, just a social and uh, economic diversity that I had never seen before growing up as a little white kid from suburbia in St. Catharines. So that, that sort of changed my heart. And I ended up working with folks um, coming out of juvenile delinquency. That's what they used to call it back then, basically prison systems for kids and supported folks who were coming out of addictions and working on the streets. And to have your eyes open to live in that environment was amazing and, and very rattling to the core. There's people who complain about the system here in Canada 
and uh, not trying to get into a U.S. versus Canada situation as far as discussions. But if you're poor in the States, there is a, a much closer margin to falling through the cracks and not getting healthcare and just basically dying out from simple things like heroin addiction. And so uh, that, that was really powerful stuff and it rattled me to the core, but I, I felt God sort of leading me in that direction. And um, during that time at Cal uh, Calvin University, it's called now over there in Michigan, I, I went through some trauma and myself and through the processing of that trauma, I had attended some counseling and that really altered the trajectory of where I was going to go in the future, just to, to work with kids who are go, have gone through trauma themselves and to walk with them no matter how or what the kind of position it would be. So um, going back to that situation in Michigan, I worked with homeless folks for a while. And then Jill, I met Jill, who is from Michigan. And we both decided to become teachers, even though she had come out of opera singing. That's a whole other story. And uh, we had taught in the public school system in Michigan for a while, Nigeria. And then we had the chance to come back to Canada and taught for a little bit before things sort of changed in 2011 when our little Christian private school shut down and unexpectedly. And we felt led to work in a foster home working with youth coming out of extreme situations who had fallen through the cracks of the traditional foster care model and we lived in a little farmhouse in Fenwick over there in Welland Road run by a little nonprofit, and we lived with seven teenagers who had fetal alcohol syndrome borderline personality disorder perhaps some of them uh, some addictions. And we decided it would be a good idea to live there with seven teenagers and our three little biological boys for about four years. And that situation, watching some of these kids thrive, watching some of them fall through the cracks and, and getting into human trafficking and starting to live, some of them falling through the cracks and living on the streets in Toronto and, and having really rough journeys, that really tugged on my heart. And so after that in 2015, when the, that chapter ended, I went back to grad school to become a clinical counselor. My passion to work with those kids. And I just, eventually, my goal is to circle back and really try to build bridges so these kids don't get left in the dust and they don't opt out of fax supports and they don't walk down those dark roads alone anyway. So anyway, so now I'm a clinical counselor. This is a long way to answer my question, your oh, question initially. That. Yeah. And so it's been a, it's been a long and windy path, but um, I've been one of those, we, we've talked about privilege a lot of last couple uh, weeks and months, but I feel really privileged to have the benefit of being able to, to, to worship and, and to be able to do these jobs that I believe in a hundred percent. And now I'm a clinical counselor mostly working with Brock University students, but also couples uh, help supporting families with some parenting issues. And, and also just currently just the massive storm of mental health uprising, right? There, there's mm -hmm. COVID in the past three months, especially. We've just seen people 
being squeezed and pulled and, and, and torn up by the fact that this COVID thing isn't wrapping up as soon as we, we thought something changed in the vibe about three, four months ago. And so that's yeah, probably a good segue now to it feels like we're moving forward in this conversation. Yeah. yeah, it feels like we're navigating these three crises, right? Where we're navigating the physical health crises, mm-hmm. the physical health crisis, the economic health crisis, and the mental health crisis. And so that's the angle that that mm-hmm. we want to speak to. And I appreciate you giving some context to the uh, ordinary, average life and upbringing that you've lived. <laughs> that's a that's a great story, Nate. And I it it definitely helps us uh, listeners enter into your world and appreciate God's story in you, but also uh, kind of connect with your heart uh, and, and why it is that you're trying to play a, a clinical counseling role in people's lives today. So that we really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, when we say mental health, let's start at the very beginning. Like from a, from a technical perspective, what, what do we even mean? What, 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 what is mental health? Well, I mean, people can look on Google and perhaps type things in. So maybe I'll, I'll go a little bit off that grid. But, but mental health, I suppose the basic idea of mental health uh, is that mm, World Health Organization talks about it being a state of well-being where, where people can realize their his or her or their own potential. And when you have mental health, not only can you cope with the quote-unquote normal stresses of life, but theoretically you can work productively and, and, and actually attain joy in your life and maybe even make a contribution to a community. Now that's sort of a subjective term, good mental health, right? And because some people sort of survive and, and live perhaps with different frequencies of joy. And and that is what it is. So um, to answer that in sort of a completely objective way is, is not necessarily helpful. But what differentiates mental health generally from mental illness is the fact that ment- mental um, mental illness is a whole other level. So it's not just mental health strain where situational issues such as a relational breakup just happen and where different work situations happen and, and there's exams. Mental illness is where that type of response in your body perhaps going down the anxious path or the depressive symptomology path, it turns into a chronic situation that lasts over months, perhaps years, and where it really impedes people's access to functioning. Is that sort of... Yeah, that's terrific. I appreciate Mm -hmm. that delineation between mental illness and and mental health and even providing some of those other examples, anxiety and depression and things like that. So let's dive into one... uh, kind of area of focus that I wanted to, to attack. And that is, it feels like one of the greatest challenges of managing mental health challenges is overcoming the stigma associated with them. Nate, why is there a stigma associated with mental health challenges that's different than other physical health challenges? Well, it's a big question, Jeff. I think you could hit that from a number of different angles and philosophers have probably written about this and and I know you guys have been touching on it from different angles with the sermon series over the past number of months but I think perhaps a significant aspect of the stigma is partly generational so Jeff you and I were generation Xers mostly growing up in the 80s when mental health was comedy gold right like so Mm -hmm. 
having kids, I don't know if you had the bright idea to show your children movies from when you were growing up, but I was like, Goonies, they got to see Goonies. Hmm. And then you watch it. I watched it at the drive-in with some friends. Um, shout out to the local drive-in out here in uh, Font Hill. But that movie has it all as far as stigmatization, ageism, uh, sizeism, right? The truffle shuffle was sort of celebrated, overt racism, homophobia. When when that guy who ended up playing Thanos was driving down a little bike, there was sexism. Oh, man, making fun of suicide, sell, you know, sort of laughing at somebody with a disability. And that's sort of, I, I think that's an important aspect of thinking about where the stigma comes from. You and I, and this whole generation of actors who's raising these kids was, was brought up on this stuff and, and it was sort of a joke and uh, homophobia and mental illness. Those were slurs. We sort of threw at people when they, when we thought they were weak, especially as guys, right. Then you add in the, the masculinity factor. Um, you know, toxic masculinity might be sort of a, a a term that hits people's nerves, but Jeff, you and I being Leaf fans, that's a good place to start, right? So, <laughs> I mean, you and I, right? We consider ourselves open, you know, I consider myself as an open-minded person, perhaps, maybe woke even, pat myself on the back, look at me, I use he and him pronouns, but as far as being a Leaf fan, if any part of you and I is a little bit, even a little bit bummed that Don Cherry's gone, right? Like, which I am, right? That, that's a huge component of toxic mas masculinity that's just like wrapped into our DNA. I grew up hearing Don Cherry and believing him. Wow, this, this, the one hockey player, Darcy Tucker, he broke his wrist, but he kept playing through three games without telling anybody. Wow, that's so great. What a, what a true man's man or a hero, right? And that, but that's not heroic. That's, that's idiotic, really, when you think about it. First of all, watching you, know, you and I being grown men, watching other grown men playing a game, that's a whole other conversation. And, you know, and, and as far as mental health, you and, us, you and I continuing to follow this team, that's a little micro trauma over the years, but uh, that's a whole other podcast, I guess. But, but just to get back to you know, the, that toxic masculinity, if, if we're, we've been trained as, as males, but even as a society, right, to push things down, down deep and put a, put aside pain. Yeah. Everybody goes through pain and, and true strength is, is pretending that that pain doesn't exist. And, um, true courage and strength is, is not admitting vulnerability. And then you sprinkle in a little bit of German or Dutch stoic pride, uh, about sort of not being flustered by obstacles, right? There's a beautiful aspect to those, those Mennonite and, and, and Dutch traditions and, and many others. But if you sort of worship that, those sort of trends, um, they can sort of be internalized to the point where when I was 17, for example, even though my, my folks are, my dad's a counselor, my mom's a counselor. And, but somehow maybe it was just watching those Leafs perhaps, or Don Cherry, I don't know what it was, but I still sort of internalized the fact that I was weak when I went through significant trauma when I was 18. And my friend died by suicide and I thought it was my fault. And I was a guy. So I was too stupid to realize I was sad. So I got angry and I, I lashed out at people. I lashed out at 
a friend of mine and somebody, some person, a well-meaning conservative Christian said something about, well, I guess he's not in heaven. Jose is, you know, he did the ultimate sin. So I, I got really angry at, at Christianity. And I'm like, well, if that's, if, if God doesn't want Hosea, then I don't want God. I don't want any part of that. Right. And that anger just really consumed a lot. It it provided me a lens to self-righteously plod through life for a long time. Mm. And, um, this is all about stigma, right? So then I, then I went to some counselor and a counselor got through to me and, and sort of, I found the right fit finally after the third counselor. And he sort of made me laugh at myself about this machismo. I, maybe we even talked about being a hockey fan and that, so I'm just sharing that story about stigma because I, even in a family that had been raised to be vulnerable and open, I still somehow internalized that sort of that place of feeling weak. And I didn't want to look weak and I didn't want to go on medicine when my body and the trauma took over my physicality where to the point where I would get triggered with certain situations and I was unable to finish classes, right? So even me sharing this out loud, there's part of me that still is, is like, oh, am I, am I going to be seen differently by people in this community, right? I, I even had to fight through that, wondering if I should share that story. And, and, and that's the thing, Nate. Like physically, if you felt pain, if you had injury, you'd go to the doctor, you'd get them to diagnose things, provide a remedy. And if that remedy included medicine or surgery or whatever, like you do it, you wouldn't think twice about it, but uh, you're, you're giving some really great contextual. And uh, even when you, when you talk about the masculinity side, uh, you know, even gender specific reasons why we've got to overcome these stigmas in order to, to address things from a mental health perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned, uh, kind of the God factor, um, you know, sometimes incorporating faith into the conversation actually makes things worse. Mm-hmm. So do you want to speak to that, you know, as a, as a Christian therapist, how you view the role that faith plays in mental health? Mm-hmm. Sure. And so just to answer that, yeah. I, when you say a Christian therapist, um, I, th- I think a good place to start would be to just press pause that and back up. I, when I'm a clinician, I'm a, I'm that title first who happens to be a Christian. And, and I think that's important to, I I think the gift of me going through that religious trauma and it taking me a long time to circle back to realize that these Christians did not represent Christ, that, this religion and the way certain people worshiped did not represent the the true love of Jesus and that I was still a part of his mission. So that trauma that I went through really informs how I talk to folks. And when I work with students who come out of Brock or, or couples, I I don't, it sounds funny in light of everything we, we talk about, we talk, we talk about people being in the closet. Well, when I'm a clinician, I leave my faith in the closet at first, right? I don't out myself because people have so much, speaking of stigma, there's a lot of stigma and trauma connected with that term Christian at this point in society, right? Especially with what has happened politically in the news down South, uh, you know, certain people 
using it perhaps as political club in, in some way, and, or maybe like we've discussed at, at, uh, through this, the messages you guys have been working through at, at Southridge over the last number of months. Um, the fact that people connect that term Christian with super homophobic and judgmental. So if, if my job is to make clients feel safe, I just put that at the door. And if a client mentions their journey with Christianity or, or some sort of faith, if I find it helpful to them, I might share my story and then lean into that way. So, I mean, you asked me, how does it inform my counseling? So step one, I put it at the door. I'm a clinician first, but on the other hand, um, as someone who believes that this job is like the inhaling and exhaling of, of worship for me, um, I feel like that gives me that's that's the battery to help me focus. I don't know if you know you hear someone like D. Newman talk or Ali Van and Bogart talk, or um, a number of other folk, people at Jericho. A lot of amazing clinicians that we have in our community. Most of those therapists probably have more academic prowess and analytical skills in their pinky finger than I do in my whole body. Uh, what I try to just focus on is being present. And I don't have to fake being super interested in someone's journey. And, and I feel like Christ is that battery to just be with people. The, the only two commandments that I really understand are, you know, love your neighbor as yourself and, um, and love the Lord, your God. And that, and this is the way I inhale and exhale. So, um, and I think you're tapping yeah. into something you know, for all of us listening. You're tapping into something very significant because when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about biological mm. issues that, again, comparing it to other physical health dynamics, like you wouldn't come to myself or to Mike Krauss or if you had a, a, a physical mm. ailment you would go to a doctor. And if that doctor brought faith to the table, well, that would be cool. And if their, if their clinic was a ministry, that would be cool. But, but you're dealing with like technical, medical, you know, clinical realities. And I guess my point to those of us listening is mental health challenges are not just things that you pray away. Mm-hmm. God mm -hmm. wants to meet us where we're at. He wants to be the life and vibrancy yeah. and, and the, the means by which we flourish. Mm -hmm. And God's placed us in a, a, a time in history and in a, a part of the world where, where we're exposed to science and can lean into the best of that. So yeah. you know, for those of us who are, are listening, like, Let's not be afraid to lean into the medical clinical aspects of this in the same way we would do other physical challenges that we're facing. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, Jeff, because, you know, that's sometimes when people are really experiencing pronounced anxiety where they have panic, they're experiencing panic attacks almost on a daily basis. And, and then you talk to them but they've been raised in a family where, oh, this is just mental weakness. And, and to, to touch on what you said, your point earlier, um, the neurobiological component of mental health has been 
there's been amazing advances, especially over the last, 20, you know, 10, 15 years where they can see my brain. And, and, you know, I walk with a diagnosis of ADHD, a little bit of anxiety symptoms, and my brain fires differently under an MRI than, than folks perhaps with uh, other journeys. And, and so sometimes when I talk to clients like this, the starting point is, you know, what do you think, what do you think about science? Right. And it's funny you just brought that up, Jeff, because that's actually almost a political topic right now, right? With vaccines yeah. and all that yeah. that kind of journey, right? So I, you can't even assume that people, you know, believe that. But then sometimes people who have have grown up in the faith, there's that perspective that they they maybe feel like you well, you can only choose one side of the coin. It's it's science or faith, and especially with mental health, right? Maybe the people aren't praying enough or whatever that is, and. Um, to, to me, the, the studies of neurobiology, uh, what brought me back to really adhering and really th digging deeper into that side of it was if, if Christ cr and, and God created the world, science is just basically the, the study of his creation. And, and to, me, to me, these kind of scientific evidence-based discussions, that's the unveiling of Christ's, uh, of, of God's majesty, of the created universe that he has set before us. So I, I don't feel like it's a choice, right? You, yes. You know, will it help to read the Psalms and, and sort of focus on and meditate on that? Yes, absolutely. Because you know what? Science is showing that mindfulness really does help center us. So basically this new science is basically discovering what God <laughs> has got, you know, some of the God, the tools that God provided us 2000 years ago to just pray and do mantras and to focus on him with hymns, right? Mindfulness is basically science catching up with what God uh, has recommended for us to do mental health for a long time. Yeah, but to your point, to your point, for people listening, because this is very critical. Like, yes, if you are struggling with mm. significant mental health challenges, it is a, not a commentary on your faith, right? Thank you. It's not a commentary on your lack of faith, mm -hmm. on your faithlessness, on God's disapproval of you. Uh, yes. Like it's neurobiological dynamics in your life that require, in addition to faith, require clinical attention. Mm -hmm. And that's a key. You're, you're bringing a, a yep. really just key foundational piece yep. to this, Nate. Yeah. And um, how my, my counselor got through to me when it was clear I needed medicine, but I was pushing back on him. He's like, I'm like, oh man, I don't want to be medicated, for example. And that was, you know, 90s when science and neurobiological supports weren't as fine-tuned as they are now. But even that at that time, my counselor said, um, to buttress your earlier point there, Jeff, he's like, Nate, you say this term medicated. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, if you had a brain tumor would you take medicine for it? I'm like, yeah, of course. He's like, would you say, oh, I don't want to be medicated? I'm like, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. He's like, well, certain types of brain tumors actually manifest similarly to extreme clinical depression and clinical anxiety. It actually impedes our ability to grab the thoughts and it, it, it impedes our brain's physical functioning to that point, right? So to me, that was helpful and a game changer when I thought about the depression, you know, some people talk about it being a black dog, or, but for me, the, the tumor idea was, was how I finally decided to take care of myself. And I just took medicine and just calling it medicine. I had a great psychologist, I was like, just medicine, right? You, you take medicine for, for colds and, and if you have the flu, 
you know, you don't have to take it forever. What, what would it hurt to try it for two months? Right. Yeah. Right. You two Advil with a headache. Yeah. 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 They would. Yeah. And he's, and he joked with me, he's like, it's cause for this, my mental health journey went on for years and I kept, you know, I'd go to counseling and I just, I kept saying to myself, this is the week, gee whiz, this is the week when I'm actually going to actually start exercising every single day. Cause I know that's the key to my mental health, which it is, but I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't get control and I couldn't get my footing. And so my counselor, every six months I'd pop back in his office and some, you know, I dropped out of classes or whatever it was. And he said, Nate, what's, he quotes Einstein. What's the definition of insanity, right? And you probably heard this one, trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. He's like, yeah. that, that's how I, you know, he, he messed with me a little bit. And he's like, what would it hurt to try this medicine for two months? And yeah, so I did. And it got things stabilized. It just decreased the, the biological symptoms of what I was going through to the point where I could actually get my footing. And some people take it ongoing for years and, and you know, I had a different journey. I just, it just got me through some certain periods. So I would get my footing and then I could actually exercise every single day and eat every two hours. And the cognitive behavioral therapy, the, the talk therapy actually stuck. Hmm. So anyway, that was my long winded way of no, that's, agreeing that's with you. Really great. And, and I mean, obviously we could be chatting about this for, yeah. for hours. I really yeah, appreciate yeah. the value you're bringing to this. Um, we got to wrap this up. So knowing, <laughs> knowing, what people are navigating, especially as you said earlier, just the intensity of this third wave and this this third lockdown. What are the top of list practical encouragements that you would provide, especially to listeners who are struggling right now from a mental health perspective, maybe even struggling for the first time or struggling like never before? So to answer that, I would, I would put if, if someone is in my office and they pose that question, I would circle back to some of our previous conversations and find out where they're at. Right. Do you, do you believe in clinical evidence? Right. Because as a clinician, my job is just to show you evidence-based paths. Cause in, in the end, people are the expert on themselves for some people, no matter what the scientific evidence, yes, I'm having panic attacks, but it's more important to me to not take medicine for whatever reason than right? It's more important for me not to take medicine than to live without these panic attacks. And so you, you basically have to meet people where they're at. And so to answer your question, I would recommend people sort of do some soul searching. What, what is your preferred story, right? What's, what's the cost benefit analysis for moving forward? So the clinically evidence-based paths for if you're experiencing significant mental illness uh, might be starting off with some counseling. There's free walk-in counseling to CMHA. There's so many helpful resources uh, on the internet. Um, so, so that's where I would start. And then the other thing I would consider, uh, encourage people to do is also, like you said, to, to not berate themselves or let their internalized stigma perhaps push them or, or keep them from reaching out, right? To practice vulnerability is so important. So I'm lucky enough to be part of a men's group with a number of Southridge guys. And, and we worked through this fantastic book called Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. And just, she, she really explores the power of vulnerability at that being the electricity. Right. And, and just, and then to, to think about being vulnerable in terms of also uh, self-compassion. Okay. So when other people are vulnerable, you know, some people might have heard my story might say, oh, wow, 
That's great, Nate. That's a sign of strength that you shared that journey with us. But but if I shared my anxiety, well, that's a sign of weakness, mm. right? There's that double standard. So self-compassion, there's a great author named Kristen Neff who comes out of Austin, Texas and selfcompassion.org if anyone ever wants to look at it. And she really, during a training a couple months ago, it really gave me a new perspective just to have people sort of examine the voice they're talking to themselves with, right? So if we, if we have kids, uh, maybe kids are a bad example because we might be harsh with them, but maybe with a friend, right? If a friend's going through anxiety and times of depressive symptoms where they can't get out of bed, you know, most of us would say, you can do this. This doesn't define who you are. You're just going through a season. Don't judge yourself because it's COVID too. Give yourself some grace, right? And we would probably talk with warm, consoling tones. But if you're like me, Jeff, um, I don't have that tone for myself sometimes, right? Even though I'm supposedly a counselor, right? Only one out of three days do I remember to check myself with the tones that I'm talking to myself with. So I'll open my garage and it's just a chaotic mess. And I'll just be like, come on, man. What are you doing, Nate? Like you're supposed to be a counselor. Can't you even clean your garage? And and I just, if I'm not thinking in terms of that voice, in terms of self-compassion, I can just cycle like that before I can catch myself. Mm-hmm. And that sort of cognitive behavioral therapy, different types of therapy helps people with, with practice, catch yourself before you cycle and start beating yourself up. So um, practicing vulnerability and self-compassion are two huge components. Yeah, was- and, and then just sort of checking in where, where you believe, right? Like to, to buttress what you were saying before, what, what do you think about clinical, clinically evidence-based treatment plans, right? Is that for you? And th- those are kind of conversations you can have with a counselor because they, they might have a lot of different options for you. And, and just having even one session might be a good place to start because if we put on all these masks for each other, or maybe we're leaders in, in church or at work or even parents, we might not give ourselves the elbow room to reach out for people uh, to, to seek help ourselves. Right. And so having that, com- that initial conversation with a counselor might be the first start. Cause you don't want to, how do you say it nicely? You don't want to poop where you eat, right. To have, just to talk to a counselor who has no horse in the race. Sometimes that can expose certain dark places that we've been hiding even from ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so. Nate, I appreciate mm-hmm. that so much. Um, compassionate self-talk, the power of community and clinical counseling. It, it sounds simplistic, but all three of those are massive milestone steps, even if they're first steps for us to take. I know we're out of time. I feel like maybe there's a part two here that we can we can tap into in a few months, but I really appreciate you joining in with us today, Nate, and to all of you who are listening in, uh, I hope that you track with some of this. And as you're facing these challenges in your own life, especially during this phase of the pandemic, take the kind of steps that Nate is encouraging you to take. Don't be afraid and lean into the courage that God can give you to take those kind of steps forward. We're excited to keep on this path and we look forward to finding our way again next week. So take care, everyone. Thanks for joining us.